You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. You can hear these podcasts as well at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 125, by Rudolf Steiner, 14 lectures entitled Paths and Goals of the Spiritual Human Being, Life Questions in the Light of Spiritual Science, translated by Christian von Arnhem. This is Lecture 6, given in Munich on the 26th of August, 1910. If I make the attempt today to sketch out the current state of philosophy and science, then the reason for that is that in the widest circles of spiritual scientific views, there is not always the clarity as to the way we, as anthroposophists, can establish a proper relationship with what otherwise exists at present in spiritual and scientific endeavors. I have occasionally included philosophical matters in the courses of spiritual scientific lectures, taking specialist areas as a starting point. I have spoken specifically about the philosophy of Hegel and its connection with the present time. Today I want to take a somewhat broader view of the subject and talk in general about the current situation of philosophy and science. Since I announced what the subject would be and the participants in my courses already know about the form which such philosophical interludes take, you will not be surprised when I say from the beginning that I am not particularly concerned about popularity. I rather want to call forth a feeling as to how we, as strictly scientific people, can find the relationship between spiritual science and other intellectual endeavors of the present. It is hardly surprising that there is not a great deal of awareness in this regard as to what has to be said in a lecture like the one today in the theosophical literature. The theosophical writers are not, as a rule, philosophers, and are not aware of the difficulties which accrue to philosophers if they try with their basic scientific characteristics to approach the field of spiritual science. I can, of course, only highlight individual examples, but I want to choose them in such a way that when I have finished, you can obtain a feeling of how we should think about the matters I refer to. Here I will begin by saying that it can, from the start, make a certain impression on a receptive soul if we talk in the field of spiritual science about supersensory knowledge, the ascent of clairvoyant research to supersensory knowledge. It must occur to those who believe that they need to approach these things from the premises of the philosophy of today, if they are talked about at all, that the objections which philosophy raises against various things it calls direct experience direct perception, must apply in the same way to everything we produce in the spiritual scientific field. As long as we dress our supersensory experiences in words, for example, which, when we speak them, you may not even be aware of this, make use of spatial or chronological ideas, as long as it can be shown to us that we do that, as long as we are unable to structure our terminology in such a way that we do not insert spatial and chronological ideas in our observations in the relevant place, 
For as long as a Kantian or some other epistemologist of the present time can come along and object, parenthesis either in the old form or in the various forms which these theories have assumed in more recent times, close parenthesis, that it was an epistemological certainty that time and space were themselves mere categories or forms of our thinking. And if we also dressed our clairvoyant results in such forms which are taken from time and space, we would, by doing that, providing something that is tied to our conceptual ability, so as a result we would basically express something with our clairvoyant results, which I know the term is open to challenge here, is merely subjective. That is a possible objection which can always be made. I mentioned it as an example of many other objections which can rightly be formulated on epistemological premises. Only if we can raise such objections adequately for ourselves, as scientists of the spirit, have we obtained the full inner right to postulate certain things. That does not provide a reason for not lending ourselves to certain information out of an inner sense of truth. We should do that because the inner sense of truth can lead us in the right direction. But we are only armed to respond to the intellectual movements of the present time if we raise such objections ourselves and, at least within our own elaborations, can respond to these objections. We have to distinguish between two kinds of objection. The objections against spiritual science will, of course, rain down on us from all sides. If we are in the position to know ourselves, what is raining down on us, to identify it for ourselves, and then are simply not heard with what we have to say about it, then the fault lies with the others. Then we can wait, as we must do, until people have become mature enough to understand our explanations. But if our explanations give an amateurish impression with regard to the intellectual movements of our time, then the fault lies with us if we cannot secure the construct of our teaching in the appropriate way. We have to be capable of doing that, of distinguishing between those things where the fault lies with us, and in very many areas it lies with us, it lies in the theosophical literature. It lies in the ease with which some people think they can find their way into the field of spiritual science. We have to distinguish between the things which are our fault and the things where we can calmly wait because we are able to put for ourselves precisely the arguments which the intellectual movements of the present time would use for their objections. But if we want such a thing, we have to be clear for ourselves, above all, where the failings of the intellectual movements of the present time lie. We have to be able to ask ourselves a little how these intellectual movements of the present time have developed. You know from my lectures that I do not like to shoot my mouth off about my opinions. The opinions of an individual person are basically not of any great value. I have always tried to allow the facts to speak for themselves also in the field of spiritual science. That is why I do not want to lecture today either about theories which are rooted in opinions, but allow the facts to speak. I want to present a fact which can illustrate how inadequacies in the thinking have developed in the course of the 19th century, 
which have prevented the penetration in a certain deeper way into what the thinking can still supply if it only draws the consequences from its premises in a sufficiently penetrating, truly sharp way. Theosophy often turns out to be so faint-hearted with regard to the objections against it because its intellectual weapons have grown blunt. If we speak only about the thinking, I know all the objections which can be raised against what I am about to say, but the matter will nevertheless present itself in this way for anyone who penetrates into the intellectual development of the nineteenth century. If we begin by starting from pure thinking, then we have to say that a certain climax was reached with Hegel in philosophical development as regards the sharpness of thinking, as regards the crystallization of the thinking in the soul. It is to misunderstand Hegel to talk about him as frivolously as his opponents in the second half of the nineteenth century did. They imagined that Hegel was intent on removing all content from the pure thought as to what it had to say about the world. The only thing is that they failed to take into account that Hegel nowhere pretends that the human subject wanted to take anything of real world content out of the pure thought we have to take into account that Hegel does indeed take the viewpoint that it is the thought itself, the inwardly alive thought, the active and productive thought, which fetches the content of the world out of itself. And that we, with our subject of cognition, are only the stage on which the thought works. If we take the matter in the way that it actually presents itself in the course of the intellectual life. We have to say, Hegel's monumental greatness lies in this tendency. But also it contains the whole of the weakness of Hegelian philosophy. The greatness in that for anyone who truly wants to come to grips with him, Hegel can become the teacher of a disciplined thinking, which we can acquire in no other way. Theosophists in particular should acquire such disciplined thinking. After all, a great number of errors, of incorrect convictions, simply arise because our thinking does not extend as far as the crystalline clarity of an intellectual discipline as can be learned through the Hegelian system. In each lecture in which we feel a responsibility toward knowledge and truth, we should, as it were, be filled with the results of such intellectual discipline. We should get into the habit of nowhere using a word that has not first been felt and experienced by us in its full scope and content. If penetrating what appears to some to be so abstract, so dry and sober, penetrating Hegelian logic, we inoculate ourselves with this discipline in our thinking, then we reach the point where we never use the words being, becoming, existence, other than in those places where in the whole structure of the lecture those words can be inserted. Because we have first pursued the whole development of the content of such concepts, from the simplest, emptiest concepts, to those with the greatest content. The philosophical lecture of today, and all of today's literature, is fundamentally 
immensely far removed from such inner discipline of thought. I could easily show you that in world-famous philosophical books of the present, the authors are not even able to sustain the content of a concept in a concise and precise way for more than three lines, and after three lines, use the concept they used earlier in quite a different way. It is quite obvious that this must lead to the inner model of the whole edifice which is represented by our thoughts. It would be easy, as I said, to demonstrate this in world-famous philosophical books of the present time. Now Hegel's opponents believed that they could easily put him to flight because they did not understand the nature of the thought and the way it interlaces on the stage of the subject of cognition. But they believed, something that was never in Hegel's mind, that he wanted to remove, as it were, the world content from the direct subject of cognition. That this cannot be, that we can never remove any substantial cognitive content from the respective subject of cognition, if it remains only in the concept, that is something we have to be clear about. That is why Hegelian philosophy had to remain unproductive with regard to the productive progress of the intellectual life. That is its weakness. Because its underlying idea that it is the thought itself which works out of itself may be correct. But it does not follow from this that it is the subject of cognition itself which has to produce the objective content of the world. What is the only way for the subject of cognition to obtain cognitive content out of itself? It is only possible if the subject of cognition fertilizes itself, makes itself capable of producing cognitive content. But such a capability can never happen on the plane of pure thinking. Through the pure thinking we obtain a kind of overview, a kind of bigger review of what the human spirit has produced in the course of world history. From a certain midpoint we can survey the thoughts which have been produced, but we cannot obtain new cognitive content. That was felt by Hegel's opponents. The only thing is that they based their opposition on false premises. But that is why Hegelianism, on its own, produced two things a sheer, immeasurably great discipline of the thinking, and the inability to obtain productive cognitive content. In other words, Hegelian philosophy cannot have an ongoing productive effect through itself. This is the point where the productive cognitive forces have to be applied, where also Hegel's subject of cognition, which has been elevated to the level of the thought, has to resolve to allow to flow in what you can find, for example, as a means of fertilization of the subject of cognition in my book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds. How is it achieved? So, let me say, if we start with direct sensory existence and the way human reason works on it, we reach that level which we can describe as the life and activity of the subject of cognition on the thought plane. But then, further progress is only possible if we have the fertilization from the opposite side of sensory existence by those means which are set out in my book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Achieved? 
Now, you will find in the literature, in which I have attempted gradually to draw attention to these things, to begin with in a preparatory way, through my earlier writings, summarized most recently in my title Philosophy of Freedom, the path we can take from outer sensory experience, from the outer work on the material of existence, to the place where the thinking resides. You will find characterized there also the specific characteristics both of the setting of the thinking and the scope of pure thinking with regard to the subject of cognition. In my subsequent writings, which deal with the actual field of spiritual science, you will find characterized the other side of the world with its cognition-fertilizing forces. You will find an epistemological characterization of clairvoyant research, the scope of clairvoyant research, which flows from the other side, as it were. If we wanted to sketch this subject out, we could say, if we characterize for ourselves the thinking plane with the subject of cognition on this thinking plane, then there flow from the side of sensory perception all those things which can be obtained through the senses by way of the external sensory material of existence. We feel the Hegelian self-weaving within the thinking plane, what is called the dialectic of pure thinking. But then we come to a standstill if we take only this path. We have to wait until we are able to let flow into us from the other side that which we can receive by way of what is described in my book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Achieved? So we can see that these things come together and that the Hegelian system was a wonderful summary of the human spirit at a specific time. But once this had occurred, those things had quite properly to happen to which the Hegelian system could not rise. The plane where the subject of cognition has to be located is fixed. It cannot be raised. It can only be described from the other side with that which can equally be epistemologically assured so that we do not remain one-sided but acquire the possibility to gain an insight into the strictly epistemological method also in those areas where we leave the sphere of just the senses. When we look at all of this, we can ask, how can it be that philosophy itself shows itself to be so reluctant to engage with those logical forms which can equally be used to determine what comes from the other side, through which we can determine epistemologically what comes from the other side? The reason for this is that the philosophy of the 19th and into the 20th century has so far neglected to take the step which should have been taken out of an Hegelianism understood in the right way. And so it happened that the philosophy of the 19th and 20th century could not find the connection to what lies beyond the thinking plane. However, the deeper reason also has to be sought in the fact that Hegelian philosophy was little understood in the further development of philosophy. Because if we rise to the plane of pure thinking, then it is quite inevitable, because we stand at the boundary to the spiritual world, that we can also feel those logical reasons which allow us to recognize 
that it is quite justified for the supersensory world to flow in. You can thoroughly feel this when you encounter such an ascent of human cognitive knowledge to the pure thought, and then the way that the higher worlds are allowed to shed their illumination in the lectures of our dear Dr. Unger, lectures which cannot be praised highly enough. Hence we have to emphasize that it is the greatest blessing that we are in a position to have such a person among us as Dr. Unger, who is able in this spiritual and philosophical field to elaborate and execute the epistemology of the pure thinking with regard to the subject of cognition, which is located as the I, capital, on the thinking plane. And thus these lectures in particular can give you something of an indication for obtaining assurance in the relationship between spiritual science and the other intellectual endeavors. If you pursue this philosophy, some of which has already been set out in Dr. Unger's remarks, some of which still remains to be set out, then you will see that this philosophy will have a quite different character as philosophy to what exists today as contemporary philosophy. A truly not insignificant thinker recently said something about the latter which basically cannot be challenged. If we look without bias at what has been produced in Germany and other countries, then we can see that what this thinker said really is coming true, that today we have metaphysics without a transcendental conviction, epistemology without objective meaning, logic without content, psychology without soul, ethics without commitment, and religion not grounded in reason. That is a characteristic of our time, as experienced by a not inconsiderable philosopher of the present. As I said, I want to let the facts speak for themselves, let what is happening speak. Whether it has to be said that he had no inclination to engage with the spiritual scientific path, or whether in the suggestion of his thinking he could not do so, is neither here nor there. But we have to say that this is how someone can think who is fully engaged in contemporary activities but cannot find the way out to supersensory content through the thinking. Certain prerequisites have to be fulfilled in the thinking, which today cannot really be found in any other philosophy than in what I have tried to establish in my book about title Truth and Knowledge, in what is set out in title The Philosophy of Freedom, and in the carefully executed operation of Dr. Unger's thinking. All of this provides the approach to an energetic philosophy from out of the field of spiritual science, which avoids mixing anything of a theosophical nature into its reflections, which aims to be strictly philosophical, and precisely through such academic rigor will fulfill its task into the future. Now we might ask, how can it happen that although it was thought that Hegelianism had been overcome, 19th century thinking in all civilized countries could not rise to come to terms with the thinking aspect in the subject of cognition in such a philosophical way? How could that happen? 
It cannot be my task to go into the profound cultural historical reasons. I have done that elsewhere. But today I want to remain in the field of pure philosophical characterization. The reason is that facts occurred, that it cannot escape anyone who attentively follows the course of intellectual life in the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s, and 1880s, as to how basically the thinking itself remains strong only in a single field of 19th century intellectual development, as to how elsewhere it became too dull to draw the consequences to be found in itself. There is only one field in which 19th century and early 20th century science demands the highest respect even from the strict thinking of the spiritual researcher, and that is none other than mathematics. Everything that has been done within the scope of the field of mathematics bears the traces of sharp, penetrating thinking. Hence, also someone who, for example, undertook their theoretical studies in the natural sciences, such as theoretical physics and chemistry, toward the end of the nineteenth century, could very much have the feeling. The things that are handed down in such complicated formulas, which had to be learned in, for example, thermodynamics, undulation theory, Clausius's theory, and so on, are not the fault of mathematics. Anyone who went through that and had the philosophical wherewithal had the feeling. It is not the fault of mathematicians. Mathematics has become a wonderful instrument to work everything out in finely chaste systems. What was blunt were the intellectual weapons. Thus it was easy to have the feeling when working with the mathematical formulas in the various fields of physics and chemistry. As long as one remained within mathematics, everything felt secure. But as soon as one had to deal with the philosophical characteristics of what one was actually calculating, the ground started to sway in all respects. That is what emerged from the minds of those who spoke in philosophical terms at the time. Nothing could be experienced other than the purest philosophical dilettantism, which particularly revealed itself when natural scientists started to philosophize, such as Dubois Raymond, in his paper titled Seven World Riddles, or his lecture on titled The Limits of Our Knowledge of Nature. But nothing is improved. So we may say, we have experienced the extraordinary phenomenon that the thinking in the form that is of necessity required of it by spiritual science has only remained strong and exact in mathematics. The strict requirements of the thinking are today not satisfied in any field of research. The strict requirements we demand from the perspective of spiritual science other than in the field of mathematics. Now I do not here wish to deal with certain contributions with their characteristics which can be applied to the cognitive field particularly from a mathematical perspective. I merely wish to draw attention to the symptomatic aspect of these things, draw attention to the fact that specifically in the field which has retained its wonderful inner strength in the field of mathematics, there has come to expression most clearly how the thinking of the 19th century is ready in itself to break through the barrier which separates the human subject of cognition from the supersensory world. And be the only hypotheses 
sometimes boldly proposed and undertaken purely computationally, we do, nevertheless, have to take what has happened in the mathematical field in such a way that it is an expression of the longing of human knowledge to go beyond the sensory world. And here we have seen specifically in the mathematical field how this longing has been realized. After all, has not mathematics in its forms in general, where we refer to them as geometry, considered certain things to be immutable since the time of ancient Euclid? Who would have believed, for example, that there is anything more immutable than the theorem that the three angles of a triangle are equal to 180 degrees? Or another theorem, if you have a straight line here and next to it a point, then in the sense of Euclidean geometry, you can draw only a single parallel line through this point next to the straight line. In other words, in the sense of Euclidean geometry, the sum of the angles of a triangle is equal to 180 degrees, and we can only draw a single parallel line next to the straight line. That follows from the premises of Euclidean geometry. Why should anyone believe that this could be different? And yet, and this is the important thing, as I said, I could say a number of things for and against the content, but I will only deal with the symptomatic aspect, with the longing to leave the sensory field. I only wish to give a characterization. We have the peculiar thing that we have seen geometries, other than the Euclidean, arise in the 19th century. So the inner precision of the thinking attempted with the means which underlie the chiseling out of geometrical truths through the thinking, this thinking attempted to crystallize out of itself a geometry or geometries which apply to something other than our ordinary sensory space. Because for the latter it is true that the three angles of a triangle together form 180 degrees and that one can only draw a single parallel line through a point next to a straight line. And geometries arose in the 19th century which do not only aim to apply to our sensory space. No. Raymanian geometry and Lobachevskian geometry are two real geometries born out of human thinking in accordance with strict mathematical laws. In the sense of Lobachevskian theory, the three angles of a triangle together are always less than 180 degrees, and in the sense of Raymanian geometry, always greater than 180 degrees. In the sense of the latter, you cannot even draw one parallel line through a point next to a straight line, and in the sense of the former, you can even draw two. These things are not so easy to take. Because when mathematicians set a certain constant as equal to zero in certain formulas, which can be used to express every special relationship given in Lobachevsky's theory, they get Euclidean geometry as a special case of Lobachevskian geometry. You can extract Euclidean geometry from Lobachevskian geometry. I do not want to discuss here that the results of clairvoyant research tell us that the determinations of neither the one nor the other geometry are correct. They are only evidence that these thought operations can take us beyond the sphere which in the first instance encloses our space. But this has to be said. If we are aware of the import of these geometries, 
then we can obtain an idea that circumstances exist which are quite different from those in the sensory world. Because the latter is ultimately expressed in the formulas of geometry. If now different formulas from those of Euclidean geometry apply to a world, then that world is a different one from ours. And we can say, with Raymanian and Lobachevskian geometry, we can see the longings of geometricians to get beyond the sensory world, to grasp something in their thinking which does not lie in the sphere of the sensory world. That is why these non-Euclidean geometries are of symptomatic importance for our century. And it is of no less importance that the Frenchman Poincaré worked on these theories in a very clever epistemological way. But unless we are willing to take the step into the field of spiritual science, we will, if we stay with the pure utilization of these extra-Euclidean determinations, only get to the point which Poincaré reached, that all our geometrical determinations show nothing other than the formulas which our cognitive capacity possesses to encompass the facts in the easiest possible way. Poincaré works that out very clearly. And Germans, too, have the possibility to learn of the importance of what actually underlies the whole subject through the meritorious translation of his book by the Munich mathematician Lindemann. So, we have to say, even if we can only give a brief indication that in one field such precision of thinking has still truly come to expression in our time, and that this precision in the thinking is well characterized in such endeavors, however dry and hypothetical they may rightly appear in individual cases. There is a longing for knowledge to take us out of the world which directly surrounds us. It is generally useful if we are aware of the precision which people can acquire through mathematical training, because everything which is justifiably produced in the spiritual scientific field must insofar as there is a thinking element, be infused with this strictly disciplined thinking. It may vanish behind the facts, but anyone who produces something of a spiritual scientific nature must be aware that such thinking should stand in the background. Otherwise, spiritual science becomes something which can easily be trampled to death by anyone who has no connection with the spiritual. And we cannot say in all instances that there is bad will if we are not understood. Because that is something which increasingly has to move center stage in the spiritual scientific field, that we make the same demands of our own thinking as the strictest mathematician makes of his. Since we have clairvoyant research at our disposal, we will be protected from constructing mathematical edifices against the wind, as it were. I say that because there are arguments against the edifices of Raymanian and Lobachevskian geometry. I merely wish to characterize the cognitive longing. But that it would be useful to be familiar with mathematical structures is something which I tried to show in my title, Philosophy of Freedom. It contains a chapter I would like to call titled The Pleasure Value of Life. Up to the time that I wrote this chapter about the pleasure value of life, there was a lot of talk in philosophical circles about the pleasure balance of life, and the factual world was used in an apparently mathematical formula 
which was meant to give the pleasure balance so that all pleasure in life was summated in A and all absence of pleasure in the same life in B. The difference between the two, the surplus of pleasure over the absence of pleasure, was called the pleasure balance. In bringing pleasure and absence of pleasure into a formula like this, a method of differentiation was chosen which we can call the mathematical formula of subtraction. The essential thing in my chapter is that I showed how it is impossible to combine pleasure and absence of pleasure in such a way that they are brought into a relationship of minuend and subtrahend. Whatever is produced in that way will never correspond with real experience. I showed that we only obtain the pleasure value if we do it like this. If we divide A by B, then C gives the quotient of the pleasure value. C equals A over B. If you conscientiously investigate the facts of life, you will find that this is true everywhere. In order to be able to do what is expressed about a fact of life in this formula, we have to have at least some overview of what can follow from mathematical structures. Take the question, for instance, how can the pleasure value in this formula become zero? How, in other words, can life become completely tedious? Through no other fact than if the denominator of the fraction, the B, is infinity. Because in forming a quotient you can only obtain a zero if the denominator contains infinity and if the numerator is one. That is to say, this premise fits with the facts of life in quite a different way. The latter will show you, even if people give themselves over to illusions, that there is always a certain pleasure in life. It exists where there is any life at all. So we can see how it can be useful to use arithmetical formulas in the right way. If you use the wrong differentiating formula, then you can easily obtain a surplus of lack of pleasure and can say, weariness of life is justified as a magnitude. You can also see how useful it is to be able to make strict mathematical logic into your ideal, as it were. If we disregard mathematics and look at the individual fields of philosophy, then we have to say, we find the impossibility everywhere. Look in the field of logic even if it has been refertilized to a certain extent from the mathematical side through the theory of probability, that a self-contained thinking can draw its own consequences. And here I want to draw your attention to the most important fact in development. Using an example in the development of our intellectual life throughout the 19th century to a spiritual scientific fact which occurred with a certain buoyancy in the spiritual life around the middle of the 19th century. At the time of Julius Robert Meyer, and then independently from him, Helmholtz, found what has since then been called the theory of the mechanical equivalent of heat, of the so-called conservation of vis viva. Now, soon after this had happened, Helmholtz constructed another theory, on the theory of the conservation of vis viva, which was then widely accepted, and which many today still consider to be unassailable, namely that in the interplay of vis viva in the cosmos there is a constant conversion 
from other, let us say, from the actions of the vital leading forces in the world, be they the forces of magnetism or electricity, be they other purely mechanical forces, the conversion of such forces into heat. Now, it is never possible in the sense of Carnot's law, as it is called, fully to complete the conversion process from energy into heat while maintaining the same quantum of energy. We have to say that it is never possible to convert all heat back into vis viva. Incidentally, if I wanted to describe the so-called second law of thermodynamics, I would have to give several lectures about it, but today I only want to give a characterization. In this context, it is not important that we set out here every detail of what we can learn about it. It is therefore the case in the sense of the second law of the mechanical theory of heat and in the sense of what Hermann Helmholtz made of that in the fifties of the previous century, that in all processes of our existence a quantum of heat must ultimately exist in the conversion of heat into energy, which can no longer be converted back into another force. As a consequence, all our physical and mechanical processes ultimately have to take the course that their energy is converted into heat. And as there will always be a residue of heat, all these processes finally have to lead to all other energy being transformed into heat, to all living forces ultimately being converted into heat. That would give us what we can describe as the heat death of our earth. No further process could follow, of course if everything were transformed into heat. Thus the thinking about physical matter in the middle of the 19th century ends up with this law, ends up with the statement which, if we consult what could be thought about physical matter at the time, is actually quite correct. It ends in a confirmation of the heat death of our earth. And the only consolation which Helmholtz could find was, it is still a long way off, and no one needs to be afraid that they will be affected by the heat death. And all we can discover shows us that this process is so minute that we can hope life will continue as vigorously as before for millennia without the earth suffering heat death. But for anyone who proceeds more thoroughly in the acquisition of knowledge, this remains simply a Philistine consolation. I only want to characterize with that something which I could have characterized with many other examples, how the progress of scientific thinking to that point, the lecture which Helmholtz gave about this matter was given in about 1852, meant that the configuration of the thinking had to come to certain results. This lecture was criticized at the time, 1856, by an Hegelian, Karl Rosenkranz. He now brought out all the heavy weaponry which was available in the arsenal of Hegelian philosophy. And anyone who knows Karl Rosenkrantz, the earnest, we can say the sincerely earnest Hegelian, knows that Karl Rosenkrantz should not be taken as lightly as people often want to take him. He brought out everything he could bring out from the Hegelian school. So here we have the other stream, namely the one following this line of thinking. This went in the direction I have tried to show. The result of physical thinking can be shown in Helmholtz, the result of philosophical thinking in Rosenkranz. 
Here we see that important objections are raised about the mechanical theory of heat. Rosencrantz chides Helmholtz for really only thinking in analogies. His laws had to be abstracted from the processes which took place in the clock, the Girondoni air rifle, and other things. It is true of steam engines that something of the living forces we call forth is lost to the environment, which cannot be brought back. As long as we proceed from such processes, which have what I might describe as finite surroundings, for as long as we cannot avoid, in what we have gained there, the kind of results which Helmholtz obtained in his treatise on the mechanical theory of heat. In this context, Karl Rosenkrantz rightly points out how it does not follow at all, as soon as we move beyond the immediate situation on earth, that there is no possibility that the heat radiating into space must be lost in the same way as happens with the steam engine. The situation could be completely different. I cannot deal today with what spiritual science has to say when it comes to speaking about the theory of heat. That is where the secure ground lies, which I was able to characterize for you in the lectures which I have just held about the biblical creation story. The Hegelian remained unproductive because he could not find the transition to this ground. Thus heat remained nothing for him other than an inner trembler. Yet with the concepts which are simply given, if with regard to strictly disciplined thinking about finite mechanics, which only applies to the immediate surroundings with all its formulas, including the formula m times v squared divided by 2, I'll read that again, m times v squared divided by 2, all these formulas apply to our immediate circumstances. With these concepts, he turns to absolute mechanics. In the ascent of his scientific system, Hegel went from so-called finite mechanics to absolute mechanics, which he applied to the movement of the heavenly bodies. Here, the formulas are transformed, so that the formulas we obtain from the steam engine, as they apply ordinarily to heat in the sense of Helmholtz, simply cannot be applied to the processes which encompass larger entities in space. But to appreciate the possibility that one can ascend from finite mechanics to absolute mechanics requires an inwardly self-directing logic, which was simply missing in the philosophy of the 19th century, including Karl Rosenkranz. Because there is a strong suggestion throughout all of his objections to which he is also subject, which takes its starting point from the dominant scientific ideas of the 19th century. They got the better of many thinkers. It truly requires self-directing thinking if one wants to break through these scientific views. I could easily show that even as far as the law of the conservation of matter, which plays such a big role, the correct thing can only become known if we are aware of the inner structure of the thinking. I could show that this law, as it exists in physics today, is nothing other than an outward projection into space of independent laws of thinking in which, furthermore, the thinking has to work with blunt weapons. We can see here what we know today in the field of spiritual science. 
that what is within ourselves appears objectively to us in higher regions. I do not even want to refer to the conservation of energy. That what I have now said about the conservation of matter applies in a wider sense. So we can see how through the suggestion of scientific findings, with regard to which we should always remain on purely factual ground, the thinking element of the human being has turned out to be blunt in this field because philosophy was not able to penetrate the skin which is formed not by scientific facts, but by the interpretation of the facts found through research. Spiritual science stands fully on the ground of scientific facts. I would consider it to be one of the greatest deficits of spiritual science if it did not go hand in hand with a real scientific investigation of the facts. But the interpretation of the facts, which have been researched, is another matter. When researchers tell us about the facts they discover in their laboratories, then we should gratefully accept their findings. Then we accept the statements of nature itself, and to deny them would be nonsense. If we do not accept them, then we show that we do not have any sense of truth. But if we were also to take the so-called monistic considerations and allow them to be impressed on us as if they were facts, then we would take the opinions of people as fact. This happens in that the opinions of people have crept insidiously, I might say, but no one is accused of being a fanatic, into popular literature. For a few pence we can purchase not just scientific facts, but also the opinions which are presented in such a way as if they were facts, which are highlighted, as it were, to say that if people do not believe them, they do not believe the scientific results. But we can adhere to the latter and nevertheless say that their explanation is nothing other than interpretation undertaken by blunt weapons of thinking. Just as this thinking is blunt with regard to the simplest physical and chemical things, so it, of course, shows itself to be all the more blunt when higher areas are considered, such as physiology. The times have long passed in which a gifted anatomist, such as old Hertel, could bring the anatomical structure of the human being to life for his pupils in the first years of their medical studies. We are dealing today with a way of doing things which is not at all aware of one thing in particular. In order to characterize this matter, I would like to dress it up in a different way. It would be my most urgent wish, in the spirit of what I myself consider to be a spiritual scientific movement, that those who have a professional, physiological, and medical training would familiarize themselves with the facts of spiritual science so that they could work through the results of physiology with regard to its factual nature. I myself will be able, at most, to provide an outline next spring of such a spiritual scientific physiology. A lot of work is required in this respect. The most wonderful material is available in our physiological literature, which we simply have to be familiar with. But we also have to familiarize ourselves with the border areas, and in turn how physiology is influenced by a true psychology, which today very much lies buried under rubble. 
Here it would be a longing of spiritual science for those with physiological training among us to undertake a strictly precise survey of certain physiological and anatomical results of recent times. It is true, however, that anyone who knows the factual material is aware that in certain areas which we would need, nothing has yet been done. But anyone who familiarizes themselves with what has already been achieved in this field could easily do that, could familiarize themselves with it in such a way that they do it productively. Then, if they are infused at the same time with knowledge of the spirit, they will not get into a situation to create a foundation for physiology in which each organ is considered of equal value in the dissection of the organism. What is the key thing which prevents physiology from getting anywhere today? We have the heart, lung, liver, and so on. They are all studied as if they were laid out next to one another as organs of equal value. That is not the case. All these individual organs have various antecedents in terms of their value. And when we hold a piece of liver in our hand, we do not hold the same matter as when we hold a piece of the heart muscle, and so on. Here it is a matter of adding a certain factor to the purely outer sensory situation, which I cannot describe in any other way than as a certain objective evaluation of the organ concerned. This will become clear to physiologists if they undertake a precise comparison of an organ in the fully developed human organism with a real embryology. Then they will realize that embryology works in such a one-sided way today because in a certain sense it only pursues an ascending process and not the descending one which runs in parallel. We do not proceed in the correct way until we bring out something at each stage of embryological development which contains a factor of decadence and another factor of productivity, as does a mathematical function. And when we get into a position in which we can apply what we have determined in terms of value to the full form of the organ in the organism, when we do not simply place the heart and the liver next to one another as organs of equal value, they are of different qualitative value, then we will have arrived at the moment when the greatest light will be thrown specifically on the magnificent results of our world of physiological facts. The things I have characterized with regard to physiology in this way could equally apply to biology, history, and cultural history. This is an area of work which lies ahead of us and which has to be built on. Here you can see in a vivid way the situation of philosophy and science in contrast to what we have in terms of positive results through what I might call favorable circumstances, through our human karma. We have the most excellent results all around us through factual research. Anyone who familiarizes themselves with these facts will see a wonderful development. What is missing is the sharp penetration, the energy in philosophical thinking, which, when it is applied, courageously applied, to the facts, can present these facts in their proper light. That was contained in epistemological terms in my basic epistemological work titled Truth and Knowledge. There you will find reference made to the kind of epistemology which counts on our epistemology not to remain without objective meaning, 
but to appear in such a way that the epistemological results fertilize our subject of cognition, so that the latter can be immersed in what is given us through the situation of science in general. If from the beginnings which should develop out of our spiritual scientific movement in this field, in all fields of science, we work in the proper way with seriousness and dignity, if we do not remain at the level of a certain theosophical amateurism, but strictly immerse ourselves in what is available scientifically, then we will come to have a metaphysics. Instead of a metaphysics without transcendental conviction, as is truly the case today, with which the weapons which are forged for it by a productive epistemology penetrates through the outer field of the senses into the supersensory. Then it will have conviction, because it will rest on metaphysics, because it will be able to fertilize the human subject of cognition. Logic will obtain its content because the laws of thinking will turn out to be the laws of the world. Ethics will also be able to possess what we can call commitment, because productive cognition will flow into our impulses. We will have ethics with commitment. Then we will also have a psychology, not without the soul, but a psychology with the soul, because the human longing for knowledge is directed to the question of the soul and its destiny in the world. This was intended as a slight attempt to show you where we actually stand when we allow our gaze to wander from what we can spiritually feel in us to what has been investigated around us, to what exists scientifically around us. If I were to characterize for you every single thing that exists scientifically, I would have to give many lectures. But more will happen over time. I only wanted to show the tendency which can lie in our spiritual science when the possibilities it contains are sought not just for egoistical reasons to satisfy our immediate personal goals, but when they are sought in order to contribute to the work on the spirit, on the cultural process of humanity. The end of Lecture 6